0: the new generation, if you are familiar with comic terminology, you will understand the term origin story. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with comic books or comic book terminology, an origin story is an account or a backstory revealing how a superhero usually or even a supervillain gained their superpowers, how a team like the Avengers or the X-Men came together, how the unique circumstances that they went through Cause them to be who they are. That is termed in this generation an origin story, the backstory. And so, for example, Peter Parker becomes Spider Man when he is bitten by a radioactive spider. The Fantastic Four becomes fantastic when they get their superpowers when their spaceship is hit by a mysterious cosmic ray. Bruce Wayne becomes Batman when his parents are murdered. Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk when exposed to gamma rays. Steve Rogers becomes Captain America when he was injected with the super soldier serum. And Stephen Tan becomes Fat Stephen Tan when he eats lots of food. So there's a lot of backstory and origin. But there's a question I often get about the origin story of Satan. It's something that many of us don't know about. But the origin story of Satan is found here in the book of Ezekiel which we have been studying as a church. We're going to be studying Satan's origin story because how he falls from becoming Lucifer to Satan is a reminder for the tricks and the traps that Satan will use on us to cause us to fall. Because how he fell is how he causes us to fall. He is not very creative. He is not a creator, he is a creation. And so he's not original in how he trips us up. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 28. We're going to be focusing on nine verses this morning, from verses 11 to verse 19, which tells of the origin story of Satan. Now, as you're turning to Ezekiel, chapter 28, verses 11 to 19... I want to put chapter 28 into context for you. I want to give you the big picture and the overview of chapters 19 to 32. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into these chapters in detail, but I hope you'll read it at home. These chapters do get a bit repetitive, and so I'm going to give you an overall summary of what these chapters talk about. Chapter 19 of Ezekiel is the first of five laments. In the book of Ezekiel, a lament is a funeral song. And chapter 19's lament, or funeral song, is a dirge speaking about Israel's soon and impending destruction at the hands of the Babylonians. Israel has sinned, and God's patience has run out because of the previous generation's sin and the current generation's sin, as we talked about last week. Ezekiel is writing during the time of King Zedekiah, historically the last king of Judah. So, chapter 19 is a lament. It's a funeral song speaking of Israel's last breath. Now that we move on to chapter 20 to 24, and chapter 20 to 24 speaks of Israel's sin again, focusing this time specifically on their history. So, it's a history lesson in chapters 20 to 24. It's a history lesson that talks about Israel's cycles of sin and why God's soon harsh judgment on them is justified. Perhaps a good summary verse that encapsulates the idea can be found in Ezekiel chapter 22, verses 30 to 31. Listen as I read from Ezekiel 22, 30 to 31. So I sought for a man among them, who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore I poured out my indignation on them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. God says by way of indictment, I look for someone who would stand in the gap. Meaning I'm looking for someone of that generation who would stand in the collapsing moral hole of that generation. Someone who would stand in the gap and guard for the righteousness of the Lord. Someone who would fix the wall and do what's right. But in a damning indictment of that generation, God says at the end of verse 30, I found no one. There was no one in authority who could turn the nation around. Yes, there were righteous people like Jeremiah. But they were only a, a lone voice in the wilderness. They were not in authority. And they could not turn the nation around. And therefore God says, I poured out my indignation on them. Which indeed God does just that. When he sends the Babylonian and in 586 BC, historically... The Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and exiles all of them away from their homeland to Babylon. That encapsulates the idea of chapters 20 to 24. In chapters 25 to 32, God speaks about judgments upon other nations. You see, God's judgment wasn't limited to Israel. These nations that God will condemn not only rejected the one true God, but their ungodly influence also caused Judah to fall. And so they had culpability, and therefore they were judged. Seven places are mentioned in these eight chapters. Ammon, Moab, and Edom to the east, Philistia to the west, Tyre and Sidon, which are cities of Phoenicia to the north, and Egypt to the south. All would be judged by God. I encourage you to go home and read chapters 25 to 32. But do so with a history book. And if you read the Bible and these prophecies with a history book, you will see that God's word, God's prophetic word, is a 100% accurate. Everything the Bible prophesies against these nations come true to the very detail now we place our focus specifically on Ezekiel chapter 28 in the context of God's judgments upon these nations he is judging the city of Tyre up to the north and in chapter 28 specifically to Tyre he is condemning the ruler and historically the ruler at that time was Ethbael the third I mention these historical details because I don't want you to think that the Bible is some sort of book of fantasy. It is historically accurate to the detail. And Ethbael III's sin, of which God is condemning the city of Tyre with, is that ruler's prideful heart. You see, Ethbael III thought so highly of himself that he thought that he was a god. And we see that in chapter 28, verse 2. Listen as I read. Son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, Thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you say, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the midst of the seas, yet you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as a heart of a God. God says, I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. I sit In the seed of gods, I oversee, if there were any other gods, I oversee them. And all the gods of the seas. And I look at you, and you're not even a false god. You are just a man. And God condemns the ruler of Tyre in verse 10. God says, you shall die. We would think that's the end of the condemnation. Because once God says, you shall die, that's, that's pretty much it. But surprisingly, the condemnation continues in verses 11 to 19. And the reason it continues is that there is a change in the subject of condemnation. I want you to notice that there is a change in the use of the term. In verse 2, he is the prince, the ruler of Tyre. But in verse 12, in Hebrew, the word is Melech. He is the king of Tyre. Ezekiel rarely uses the term melech, rarely uses the term king. He only uses it one other time in this book. This change in title signifies that there is a shift in the focus of this chapter. It's in reference to another person. And if we were to use what's called the normal rule of interpretation in hermeneutics, we call it a plain reading of the text. If we were to read verses eleven to nineteen, we would see that this king of Tyre that is described cannot be a mortal human being. Because the description and a plain reading of it does not describe a human person. It speaks of something beyond that of a normal person. And that's why most people believe, and as I believe, that verses eleven to nineteen speaks of Satan. He is the true demonic force behind the ruler of Tyre. So in effect, he is the king of Tyre. He is the one who stands in opposition to the one true God. It is because of the demonic influence of Satan that this ruler of Tyre does what he does. And there's actually a similar example in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 10 verse 13, the Bible tells us that the archangel Michael is in conflict, is fighting, the prince of Persia. Now, this reference to a prince of Persia is not referencing an actual prince living in Persia. But because this battle is being fought in the spiritual realm, this prince of Persia is in reference to a demonic prince who has administrative responsibilities over the land of Persia. And that's why Michael the archangel is fighting this demonic prince in the book of Daniel. So when the book of Ezekiel, here in verse 11, references the king of Tyre, it is talking about Satan. Now let's take a look and see what the Bible says about Satan's origin story and why it's important for us to understand his fall and his sin. There are three descriptions of Satan's Creation. Look with me. Verse 11 and 12. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. The Bible tells us that Lucifer, the morning star, was created in perfection meaning he was created sinless. When Satan was created, no sin was found in him. God did not create Satan to be a monster who would cause the downfall of billions of people. And so do not blame God for Satan. When God created Lucifer, also known as Satan, God created him sinless. The Bible tells us He was the seal of perfection, created in perfection, the first description of Satan. In fact, he was one of God's most beautiful creations. He is described as one who is perfect in beauty. What a compliment. He was one of, if not the most beautiful of God's angelic creations. When God created angels, he didn't create angels as robots. Angels could think for themselves. Look what it says in verse 12. Full of wisdom. Angels could think for themselves. And Satan was full of wisdom. I want you to understand that. He was wise in a godly way when he was created. Look at verse 13. You were in Eden, the Garden of Eden. Every precious stone was in your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, oranx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. The second description of Satan is that he is unmatched in beauty, The Bible describes him as one who is in the Garden of Eden, meaning Satan saw the creation of mankind. He saw the creation of Adam. Satan saw how Adam fellowshiped with God. Satan saw how Eve was created out of the rib of Adam. And he was privileged to be allowed into this very special, beautiful place referred to here as the Garden of God. Apparently not all the angels were allowed in the Garden of Eden, but Satan was. That's why when you read the account of the fall in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve meet Satan in the form of a snake, they weren't scared. It wasn't a surprise. Oh, no, look, a talking snake. It wasn't a surprise to them because Satan had access to the Garden of Eden. And so Adam and Eve, no doubt, would have met Lucifer in the Garden of Eden before he fell. To describe his beauty, nine gemstones along with gold are said to have covered him. He was given literally a heavenly bling. Ezekiel used figurative language to indicate Satan's jaw-dropping beauty, his high stature. Not even Michael, the archangel, was described in this way. God prepared a very special role for Satan when he was created. The Bible tells us the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes. Apparently, Satan was the minister of music. He was given a special talent. He was prepared before he was created. And he was prepared when he was created to do what? To lead the heavenly realm the angelic realm, to sing praises to God. That was his role. God's special creation created for a purpose to serve and to glorify God. I want you to keep that thought in your mind before we continue. It is the same with us. Before we were born, God thought about us. And then he breathed life into us. And so we are God's special creation created for a heavenly purpose, which is to serve and to glorify God. We've been given a purpose. The third description of Satan, verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. God created Satan as a special type of angel, an angel known in the category as cherubim angels. And we talked about cherubim angels early in our series in Ezekiel. Cherubim angels were special angels that held the high privilege of being closest to the throne of God. In fact, cherubim angels guarded the holiness of God, which we read about in chapter 10 of the book of Ezekiel. That's why when God gave instruction for the Ark of the Covenant on earth to be built, He asked that two cherubim angels were placed guarding the mercy seat, which is on top of the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Because it is the cherubim angels that guarded the holiness of God. And therefore, these symbolic angels on the Ark of the Covenant were mimicking what was actually happening in heaven. And they were covering and protecting the mercy seat, which is the presence of God on the Ark of the Covenant. Satan was close to the presence of God. He had access. the Bible says in verse 14, to the holy mountain of God, the throne room. The third description of him is that he is unparalleled in his power and influence amongst the angelic creations. Satan had free and special access. The Bible tells us you walk back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. What are the fiery stones? We're not really sure, but most people believe that the fiery stones are a defensive wall that protected the inner throne room of God. And this picture is that Satan could have access to all of heaven. He walked throughout heaven, and he had access To the innermost sanctum of God's heavenly throne room. He could pass easily between the fiery stones. There is no doubt that Satan, perhaps only second to the Archangel Michael, had unparalleled power and influence, very special as part of God's created angelic being. But then he falls. Look at verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. If you're going to ask me one verse of the origin of sin, the origin of evil, here it is. Ezekiel 28 verse 15. Here in verse 15 it is again made abundantly clear that God is not the author of evil God is not the author of sin and yet the Bible tells us sin was found in Satan I know this may frustrate you because in your mind you're thinking how does this work out God who is the creator of all things God who is not the author or the creator of evil God who created Satan Satan somehow allows sin to be created? How does that work? And the answer is I don't know. I don't know. This is one of the great mysteries of the Bible. God in His sovereign wisdom does not reveal how this works out to our full understanding. God simply gives us a series of truths that we are to accept God creates all things, God is not the author or the creator of evil, but sin is found in God's sinless creation, Satan. Perhaps the best way to put it is we have to say that evil and sin was somehow self-generated, self-created in Satan, and God allowed it. As an engineer, I struggled with this for many, many years. The problem of evil. Why did God allow evil to come into this world? But I have to come to an understanding that there are many things in life and in the Bible that I will never understand. I can demand it of God, but who am I in my limited knowledge? To demand from an omniscient sovereign God That he must explain to me, to my understanding The mysteries of the universe The second realization I came to For me to be finally able to accept this Is that I look at the focus of scripture Scripture does not focus On how sin entered into the world It's only here found in this one verse But what does the scripture focus on? The Bible from Genesis to Revelation focuses on the solution to the sin problem. And if the focus of scripture is on the solution to the sin problem, maybe that should be my life's focus. Instead of always worrying about that which I will never be able to understand, which is only recounted here one time in the entire Bible. Now, I know that answer may be unsatisfying to many of you, but that's the answer. God created Satan in perfect, sinless state. God is not the author of sin. God is the creator of all things. And yet, this self-generated sin was found in Satan. How that works out, I leave it in the hands of a sovereign God. But what specifically was this sin that led to Satan's fall? We need to know so that we can avoid this similar sin as well. Because as I mentioned before, Satan uses the same trick and the same traps in our life of how he fell. Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you o covering cherub from the midst of the fiery stones satan's self-generated sin was the sin of pride the sin of pride even first timothy chapter 3 verse 6 tells us lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil in the context of 1 Timothy in an admonition to young Christians being put in leadership Paul writes to Timothy and tells us that the devil's sin was a sin of pride now there are three aspects to his sin of pride the first was that his pride was because of his power and influence look at verse 16 by the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within Now, the abundance of trading doesn't mean that Satan was doing business in heaven. But in the context, in reference, the powerful city of Tyre, Tyre in Phoenicia had great trade, being on the seacoast, with lots of its surrounding neighbors, and therefore it was very powerful. Satan, similarly, as one of the chief angels, with access to all of heaven and even the throne room of God, was able to wield his influence and power, which caused him to be prideful. In fact, I want you to understand something. Satan was so influential and so powerful that he was able to convince one-third of all the angelic realm to rebel with him. Now remember, angels could think for themselves. Angels sat in the presence of the glory of God And yet so influential was Satan that one-third of the angelic realm fell with him, rebelled against God. Two-thirds of the angelic realm chose to side with the Lord God. And so you can take comfort in that. For every one demon, there are two angels. The Bible tells us he is removed from his privileged position as a guardian cherub with access to the throne of God. When he fell, Satan is no longer allowed the freedom and the access he once had on the mount of God. I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. So Satan doesn't have that free access to go into the throne of God whenever he wanted. Now he does still have access to God. The Bible tells us, He is before the Father, and what is he doing? He is accusing us day and night. That's what he is doing. Remember the book of Job? At the beginning of the book of Job, Satan is talking to God. So Satan does have access to God, but it is now more limited than what it once was. Not that you would ever think to do it, but if you are able to trace the life of Satan, you will find out that as the history of the world progresses into biblical prophecy, you will find out that Satan's power is diminished until he is destroyed. And so he was created in perfect beauty and perfection, and he has full access to heaven. He falls. His access is limited, verse 16. In the future, in the time of the tribulation, The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 12 there will be a time where Satan is cast out of heaven and his confines is restricted to earth. So right now he roams the earth and right now he has access to heaven. In the future, in the Great Tribulation, Revelation chapter 12, he no longer has access to heaven. He is confined here to earth. Fast forward seven years. We come to the millennium. In Revelation Chapter 20, the Bible tells us. Now he no longer is allowed even on earth. The Bible tells us he is bound in the abyss, the bottomless pit, a place called Tartarus, and there he is bound for a thousand years. He will be put into the demonic prison known as Tartarus, the bottomless pit. At the end of the thousand years, He will be released only to lead a failed rebellion against God. Fast forward a thousand years, at the end of the millennium, before the great white throne judgment, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, he will be cast into the lake of fire. And you know what's going to happen to him? It says it right there in verse 10 of Revelation 20. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. How the mighty have fallen. Satan's pride due to his power and influence actually led him to lose all power and lose all influence. Because the end state of Satan is that the Bible tells us he will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and today he knows his story he knows that he is going to be destroyed and here's his philosophy if I'm going down I'm taking as many people down with me as possible and he leads people in the same rebellion Because he has suckered us into thinking that power and influence will lead to greater things. But a pride in power and influence will only lead to a loss of real power and real influence. Because there is only one who holds true power in his hand. Here's the first lesson I want you to take away this morning. Number one, if you're taking notes. Pride in power and influence leads to destruction. Pride in power and influence leads to destruction. My friends, it's a warning to us. If you allow the pride of your heart because of your influence and your power to overtake you, I can guarantee you it will lead to your downfall. You know, Jesus warns the very same thing in the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. You know these verses. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to where? Destruction. And there are many who go in it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Satan is causing this generation and the generations before ours to pride themselves in power and influence leading to destruction. Be careful. The second lesson, look at verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Part of Satan's pride was because of his beauty. Imagine Satan was so into himself that he thought he was awesome. And the Bible tells us it corrupted his wisdom. He was perfect in wisdom smarter than all the angels in the angelic realm. But his pride caused him to corrupt his wisdom. How? Because he forgot where that beauty came from. It was God who created him so beautiful as a creation. It was God who adorned him with brilliance. There was nothing he did as a Created being that he should have been prideful about it was God that created him perhaps with a beautiful voice But his heart was lifted up because of his beauty I'm so awesome That it corrupted his wisdom. He forgot that it wasn't about him. I Once wrote in an article these words A truly humble heart never takes credit for what belongs to God. A truly humble heart never takes credit for what belongs to God. And therefore, inversely, a prideful heart always takes credit for that which belongs to God alone. A prideful heart takes credit for that which belongs to God alone. And this is a perfect picture. Exemplified by Satan's pride I'm beautiful I'm so awesome he completely forgot that there was a God who created him like that my friends understand this lesson and this warning if you allow the pride of your heart to go unchecked it will and I've seen it It will cause you to forget the God who created you and the God who enabled you with abilities and talents, and you will forget the God who gives you by His grace all good things because we all want a part in our success. We all want to say, well, it was because of my two hands How do you view yourself do you view yourself more than who you really are because my friends God created us as limited human beings our minds cannot even understand the great things of God and God creates us as limited beings to keep us humble because he wants us to understand that there is an order of things he is God he is supremely God He is omniscient and omnipotent and just and righteous and loving in all of His ways and we are but nothing in His sight. And He wants us to understand that. You know, that's why God hates all things occultic. That's why God hates the magical arts. Because the practices of the occult and the practices of the magical arts is a human endeavor that tries to make many gods out of us, that tries to take that which is God's power and God's knowledge and bring it to us. A few years ago, I preached on the occult culture. And in that sermon, if you still remember it, I mentioned that the occult practices can be grouped into three categories. The three categories of occultic practices are divination... Magic with a K as opposed to magic with a C because magic with a C is in reference to illusions and sleight of hands and that has no demonic things involved in that. But magic with a K. And the third is spiritism. I mentioned that divination, things like horoscopes and fortune telling, is an attempt to know the future, right? To predict the future. And yet the Bible tells us That only God knows the future. And he reveals to us what he wants us to know. And if he doesn't reveal to us our future, then it's none of our business. But we as limited human people can't accept that. And so we dabble into the occult and we go to the tarot reader and we look at our horoscopes, which are all false. And we seek out fortune tellers because we want to know that which alone belongs to God. Magic is an attempt using charms and spells and curses to somehow change the future and change the circumstance. To wish upon your worst enemies something bad to happen to them. To wish upon you good fortune. And I would categorize feng shui in this as well. And the Bible teaches that it is only God who controls our lives. It is God who controls the circumstances of the future. And we don't need to worry because just as He cares for the lilies of the fields and the birds of the air, He will also care for us. And yet we don't take Him at His word. And we're so worried. And so we want to manipulate the future. And so mankind dabbles into the occult magical arts and we're fascinated by those things because we want the power that is God's to be able to change circumstances and future events and then spiritism it's a good reminder especially this is October and so Halloween's coming up so you got to understand God is not pleased with this holiday spiritism what does it do it tries to communicate with the dead contact a spirit to do what to say hello no to try to gain some sort of special information what information can I find out from these dead spirits what would they like me to do and yet the Bible is very clear only God knows the things of God and if God doesn't reveal it to us then he doesn't reveal it to us we can't force God's hand remember Saul in the Old Testament The Bible tells us that because of Saul's sin, God no longer spoke to him. And Saul didn't wake up. He wanted to know. So he went and consulted a witch at Endor. And he asked the witch at Endor to conjure up the spirit of Samuel, that great prophet of old. And it was a demon that was conjured up in the likeness of Samuel, And the demon cursed him also and said, you're going to die. There is a picture then of man's attempt to know that which God chooses for us not to know. But we don't trust him enough. You see, at its root, our attraction to the occult and the magical arts is because of pride. God, you can't possibly control everything. Give us some of that power But when we dabble in those things, we are taking the power and knowledge which is God and His alone and giving it to ourselves. And the result, the Bible tells us, is your downfall. I cast you to the ground, verse 17. I laid you before kings that they might gaze on you. Satan, wanting to be so powerful at the end because he was so into himself, It led to his downfall. My friends, this generation's focus on self is the devil's trap. Because this focus on how awesome I am will cause our downfall. I just read a report two days ago. It was picked up by a lot of the major news wires, including the BBC, where I read the report. It said that 259 people have died trying to take a selfie. That's one too many. Imagine, is it worth your life to take a selfie? To get that perfect shot with you in it? 259. And in this report, it says the actual number could be much higher. But oftentimes, they never put down as cause of death, death by selfie. Because what an embarrassment. How did your son die? Well, he died taking a picture of himself. And so they don't write the real cause of death. It was an accident. And here's what I found very interesting in this article. It concludes, It is therefore important to assess the true burden, causes, and reasons for selfie deaths so that appropriate interventions can be made. I wanted to scream at that article. I can save you millions of U.S. dollars for you having to do that scientific experiment the solution stop being so into yourself it's so simple it's real easy you see the second truth i want you to take away from satan's origin story number two is this pride in the focus of oneself leads to downfall pride in the focus of oneself leads to downfall And that's why the scriptures is always talking about others. Serve others. Do unto others. Rarely does the Bible talk about us, me. Except when it's asking us to examine our hearts to see why we're not more Christ-like. It's about others. So that we will stop focusing on us and how we think how awesome we are. There's an old children's song. I don't know if we still sing it today in our church. But I like older songs. There's such depth of words, even in a children's song. And this one's written by Metzger in 1951. And some of you, I think, know this song. It's a song entitled, Jesus and Others and You. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I think the words are very appropriate. And it goes something like this. Jesus and others and you, what a wonderful way to spell joy. Jesus and others and you, in the life of each girl and each boy. J is for Jesus, for he has first place. O is for others you meet face to face. Y is for you, in whatever you do, put yourself third and spell joy. Isn't that a great song? How many of you know that song? That means you're old. It's all right. I know that song. It's a great song. Put yourself third and spell joy. So many people are living a miserable life today, all emotive and all emo because they're always worried about themselves. We've gotten it all wrong in our generation today. The joyful life comes when we put ourselves third and spell joy. But Satan doesn't want us to live like that. He wants you to fall the same way he fell when he said, I'm so awesome. And so 1 John 2.16 talks about how Satan gets us to sin, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all those things are about self and the satisfaction of the self. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a hottest spirit before a fall. Do not get caught into the pride of focusing on oneself, lest it lead you to your downfall. The third truth, verse 18 to 19, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Satan was prideful in a third aspect. He was prideful in believing that in his unrivaled perfection he could do no wrong. I am perfect in all my ways. I can do no wrong. That is a statement of a prideful man. And yet, verses 18 to 19 tells us exactly what he did. He messed up everything. You defiled your sanctuaries. You messed up what God had created perfect and beautiful by the multitudes of your sin. You have dirtied everything. And what was the result? The result is that Satan was disgraced. Satan today... Is synonymous with all bad things. If I were to ask you in the congregation this morning, would you draw for me on a piece of paper something beautiful, somebody nice? Most of you would draw a picture of Jesus. Hopefully some of you would draw a picture of me. I don't think anyone would draw a picture of Satan if I were to ask you to draw someone who's nice and Beautiful. Now, if any one of you did draw Satan, we need to go into counseling. Because Satan is not synonymous with anything beautiful. Look what the Bible says. You have become a horror. If I were to ask you to draw something evil, I think 99% of you would draw Satan. The 1% would draw your enemy. But most of you would draw Satan. And you'd probably draw him with the untheological, unbiblical pitchfork and two horns. The Bible is true. The Bible says, now we look upon him with disdain. He is the personification of all things bad, all things evil. Now, look how far he's fallen. What did the Bible tell us at the beginning of this section? He was the model of what? Beauty and perfection. Now, no one thinks about him as being beautiful. And here's a third truth I want you to understand, number three. Pride in thinking you are unrivaled in perfection leads to disgrace. Pride in thinking you have unrivaled perfection leads to disgrace. When you think too highly of yourself, that is a problem of pride, and you will be disgraced. Why? Prideful people do not listen to constructive criticism. Prideful people... Do not listen to godly advice. And the Bible is replete with verses that tell us when you don't listen to advice, you will fall. It's like you tell someone who has diabetes, you should wear shoes, you should not walk barefoot because if you have diabetes and you cut your foot, maybe they may have to amputate it, but they don't listen. You give them a slipper, they throw it out. I can walk barefoot if I want. And then what happens? They stumble upon something, cut their foot, they get an infection. And they end up having their foot amputated just because they thought, well, I'm perfect. I can do whatever I want. The final disgrace of the one who was at the zenith of his beauty and perfection is now no more. Because pride says, I'm all that. Disgrace says, no, you're not. And the worst thing a prideful man or woman who believes that they are perfect in all of their ways is to hear that they are wrong. The Bible says, you have become a horror. You shall be no more forever. Satan was defeated at the cross. His destruction is assured. His destruction is secured. He will be thrown into the lake of fire. Why do people still follow him? Why do Christians still follow his ways of the world? The Bible tells us Satan doesn't love us. He is ready to devour us. And yet in our prideful stupidity, we still follow him in the ways of the world. That's on us. That's our pride. Learn the origin story of Satan. I hope none of you will mimic his life. He fell because his pride caused him to sin. He prided himself in power and influence. He prided himself in himself. He thought way too highly of himself. And for many of us, that sounds just like us. Instead, our example should be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. God himself, Jesus Christ, made Satan in perfection. And yet, greater than Satan, the Creator The Bible tells us he takes on bodily form. He took on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. Philippians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10 tells us, and then God exalted him, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. He's Lord of all. That should be our example. We have nothing to be prideful of, and yet we go around thinking, I'm a self made man. I'm a self made woman. If you think like that, your thinking is just like the devil's, and it will lead to your downfall. I'm not speaking to you, I spoke to myself this week. It is a lesson all of us need to hear. To know the origin story is to know the things we are to avoid. To know a story, only to know a story, is of no use. Let us learn to follow the example of Jesus when we humble ourselves before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a stark reminder for all of us that we are to live in humility, for we are nothing apart from you. It is you, by your grace, who have given us all things, who have enabled us to do all the works of our hand. Keep our hearts in check that we do not fall out of your grace. Thank you for being so patient with us and being so gracious. As we come now to a time of communion, may the reminder through taking the elements remind us of the type of attitude. We are to have a humble heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.